1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs.
1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello there, history friends. My name is Zach Twomley, and you're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles Anniversary Project. This is episode 67, so as you can see, we've been going for some time now. We will be finished, eventually, the Versailles Anniversary Project, but... Until we are, I hope you're enjoying it. And if you are, why not get in touch and let me know. One of the best ways that you can support this podcast, I mean, let's be honest, there's a heck of a lot, but a great way you can show your support and show that you're enjoying this show is by dropping us a review on the iTunes store. By putting your review on the iTunes store, you make it publicly known that you're enjoying this show and that you approve of what we're doing here at When Diplomacy Fails. I know that these long-running, very intense, very complex series, wherein to understand what's going on you have to basically start at the beginning, I know they're not for everyone, but I also know that some of you guys really enjoy them. And I also know that some people are just waiting for me to finish the whole thing before they actually start. I'm probably one of those people, if I wasn't doing it myself, and if I wasn't so clued into what's going on, then I probably would wait until the very end of this project before actually listening to it myself. But as it happens, I'm stuck in a situation where I have to do it anyway. And I'm also stuck in a situation where I pretty much have no free time to think about anything other than Versailles. So with that in mind, I would really appreciate it if you went over to iTunes and told people just how obsessed I am with the Versailles anniversary project. If you could do your best in your review, not to make this whole thing sound too scary or intimidating, I'd really appreciate that too. A pretty reasonable question someone might ask when they see that there's 66 episodes in the can and that those episodes are pretty much long in the tooth, they might be wondering where in the heck do I start. So in the course of that review, you could let people know that it's not all that hard to get down and dirty with this show and to really enjoy the product that I'm putting out there. I hope you do enjoy it, and if you're not enjoying it, please let me know what I can do to change it and make it more enjoyable to you. I have, of course, shortened that introduction because it was grinding people's gears, listening to it for 50 episodes in a row. I understand these struggles, and I understand as well that you probably want me to just get on with things. But maybe iTunes isn't your thing. Maybe you'd like to stay away from all those things that Apple has created. If so, follow me on Twitter, at the WDF Podcast, and you'll be able to keep in touch with the latest musings, the latest history musings from the mind of When Diplomacy Fails. From me, that is. There's no mind in When Diplomacy Fails. It's just Zach Twomley doing his level best to make history thrive. And with that in mind, I should, of course, remind you that on the 18th of May, this podcast is seven years old, and to celebrate, we're releasing a Q&A episode, wherein we'll be dropping some really huge news. So stick around and listen to that if you're interested to find out All about what is going down with me, with this podcast, and other things besides. Alrighty guys, I've rambled long enough. It's time we took you to the latest episode of the show. listening to the versailles anniversary project episode 67 today is the 15th of may 2019 and on this day in history 100 years ago occurred the following events in his book the vanquished why the first world war failed to end the historian robert gervarth opens with a scene which to most of us will be completely unfamiliar. The scene is especially surprising, because normally, when encountering a book that claims to examine the end of the First World War, you'd expect the Western Front, the social situation in Germany, or even the Russian Civil War to serve as our introduction to the era and to the book. Robert Gerwarth does give ample attention to these aspects of the story throughout his very good book, but in the opening scene, we're transported to the city of Smyrna, on the 9th of September, 1922. The First World War by this stage has been over, in quotation marks, for almost four years. And yet, as Gerwarth consistently reminds us, here in Turkey, the successor state of the Ottoman Empire, the war did not end so cleanly or completely as many will have been led to believe. Smyrna was but one piece of the Turkish west coast, that section of Asia Minor which ancient Greece had colonized and which thousands of years later in 1922 still bore that legacy. The city of Smyrna itself was a mishmash of different ethnicities, religions, languages, and nationalities, but during the tumultuous events of the Turkish war for independence, which lasted from 1919 to 1923, Smyrna had been claimed by Greece as the first step towards the establishment of a greater, Greek Empire, spanning all of mainland Greece, portions of Asia Minor, parts of the Balkans like Thrace and Macedonia, and virtually anywhere else that Hellenic culture was said to have existed. The Greco-Turkish War, which erupted in the aftermath of the First World War, initially went well for the Greeks, as Turkey was ripped apart and divided by the Allied powers. Following a Turkish resurgence under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, later to be christened, Ataturk, during the summer of 1922 though, the Greek army was defeated, and its remnants retreated out of Central Asia Minor towards the coast, and as they went, they burned, looted, raped, and murdered. The tit-for-tat atrocities were perpetuated by both sides, as Christian and Muslim, Greek, Turkish, Jew, and Armenian all played their parts. The Greek landing at Smyrna represented the beginning of this Turkish struggle. It represented the beginning of the Greco-Turkish War. And it also represented the beginning of this tit-for-tat atrocity policy. The fate of the Orthodox Archbishop at Smyrna, an early supporter of this Greek invasion, reflects the incredible heights which racial and religious hatred had climbed to. This unfortunate man would face a gruesome fate, as a French sailor observing the events wrote. The crowd fell upon him with guttural shrieks and dragged him down the street until they reached a barber's shop, where Ismail, the Jewish proprietor, was peering nervously from the doorway. Someone pushed the barber aside, grabbed a white sheet and tied it around the archbishop's neck, shouting, Give him a shave! They tore out the prelate's beard, gouged out his eyes with knives, cut off his ears, his nose and his hands. Such horrific scenes and such vehement hatred are not normally what we imagine when we think of the end of the First World War. Versailles, the Paris Peace Conference, the German War Guild Clause, reparations and some League of Nations are sprinkled in. These things are controversial and tragic failures in their own way for sure, but they're somehow cleaner, or somehow viewed than being cleaner, than what followed a generation later from 1939. Yet, Gerwarth's point isn't just to illustrate the horror of this episode, it's to remind us that, as late as 1922, when those at Versailles had long since ceased to think about Germany and had gone home, the aftershocks of the First World War were still being felt. The First World War, Gerwarth attests, had failed to end, or at least, its aftershocks had failed to be contained. The Ottoman Turks, defeated in that war, had had to fight for their national existence, while facing some well-deserved criticism for their terrible wartime behaviour, and opportunistic interventionists from the Allied camp. The atrocity visited upon the Orthodox Archbishop in this case was but one instance of the boiling hatred between Greek and Turk, and in the grand scheme of the post-war world, it was merely a microcosm in the wider depths of chaos and terror which ripped through so many people's lives and countries. The Treaty of Versailles and Paris Peace Conference may well have promised a great deal for the future of European and world relations. The war to end all wars had itself been ended. The Paris Peace Conference had long since ended. The French capital emptied of foreign diplomats and VIPs, and now it was time to live in the peace. Yet even while our focus will not extend to 1922, and even while the fate of Germany has been our main interest... I felt that this anecdote here was important to share because it demonstrates a central fact which was relevant all across the board, wherever one lived, negotiated or fought. The central fact is this, the First World War did not end cleanly and it did not go quietly. Looking at the timeline we know that the First World War was fought from 1914 to 18, but the reality was far more complex, a great deal messier and much more tragic. Not the post-war peace arrangements, and certainly not the post-war Greek government, were capable of solving the burning problems which so affected their world. The war to end all wars led merely to another war between the Greeks and Turks, and the inherent acidity in the Greco-Turkish relationship, which dated back centuries, was itself only solved by a striking arrangement signed in January 1923. Through that arrangement, Turkey would exchange its 1.6 million Orthodox Christians, some of them Greek and some of them Turkish-speaking, for the 355,000 Muslims, most of them Greek-speaking from Greece. This was an incredible arrangement, and it's largely forgotten today, but it transformed Turkey into a homogenous state, and it erased in a heartbeat, thousands of years of history. As an exercise in population transfer, it was not surpassed until the aftermath of the Second World War when Germans were pushed in their millions out of Poland, the Baltic States, Czechoslovakia, the Ukraine and elsewhere. We're so used to the idea that the aftermath of the Second World War was brutal and tragic, but it is time to accept the fact that in the aftermath of the Great War, human beings did terrible things to one another in the name of race, ideology, religion and imperialism. By now, I'm sure we've realised that the Paris Peace Conference was not a period of peace, nor was it particularly clean, honourable or, unfortunately, all that effective, in the case of Asia Minor and the fate of Smyrna, were presented with additional evidence in support of the idea that the best laid plans often proved, in the cold light of day, to be deeply flawed and impossible to fulfill. So it was for Venizelos, the Greek premier, who, after spending much of his time in Paris agitating for the acquisition of Smyrna in 1919, was forced to watch three and a half years later as the situation fell apart. Indeed, the diplomatic triumphs leading up to the actual Greek landing, which took place on this day 100 years ago, in addition to Venizelos' ballooned reputation, proved to be the high-water mark of his success. From the moment the soldiers landed in Smyrna, everything went downhill for Venizelos. That those scenes of brutality and terror in 1922 were the consequences of Venizelos's popular and pleasing policy in 1919 was difficult to predict, but it could not be denied, even as Venizelos painted such a rosy picture of the concept that the future of Smyrna would be rocky. As the historian Michael Llewellyn Smith noted in 2006 when he wrote that, Of all the issues which Venizelos presented to the Paris Peace Conference, the most important and difficult was the claim to his own in Asia Minor. It was ambitious, laying claim to a population of some hundreds of thousands of people of mixed Turkish Muslim, Christian, Greek, Armenian, Jewish, and Western European Levantine origins. It would clearly require military force to be made good over time. In the longer term, it would require either that the Muslim inhabitants of Greek's zone be reconciled to Greek rule, or that they be exchanged for Greeks from outside the zone so as to make the Greek zone homogeneous. It directly impinged on the perceived interests of Italy, which claimed territory in southwestern Anatolia. In other words, the claim bristled with difficulties, but was enormously attractive, both in that it incorporated in the Greek state the most substantial and prosperous of Greek communities in the diaspora, and because it extended Greek territory around the Aegean, though Greek sovereignty would not be continuous unless, and until, the Greeks also obtained the Straits zone. Venizelos had overcome the difficulty of claiming the Straits zone, by that we mean the Bosphorus and Constantinople, by adopting a strategic approach to that region, in the same way that he avoided directly claiming Cyprus, on the expectation that it would naturally fall to him in due course. He argued successfully for the reimagination of the Straits region as a neutral zone, internationalised and maintained by the League of Nations, where it was anticipated, following the passage of a few years, Once the world realised how benevolent Greek rule in Smyrna was, the region would pass to Greece. These anticipations were to prove incorrect, as the reality of Greek rule proved less benevolent and the Turkish reaction to the Greek arrival far more impassioned and oppositional than expected either. A common theme of Venizelos' career at this point was that his plans were more appealing and glamorous in their conception than in their execution but it still must be highlighted that in this period of time where the Greek Premier had worked to canvass support for his schemes and to paint a picture of his vision, Venizelos was incredibly successful. As Michael Llewellyn Smith continues, The Paris Peace Conference was the zenith of Venizelos' diplomacy, defined as the use of diplomatic means, persuasion, lobbying, negotiation and propaganda to achieve the ends he set out for in Greece even if the Asia Minor catastrophe in September 1922 retrospectively threw doubt on these ends. Venizelos was in his element in Paris, where his qualities of charm, will, power, personal force and industry came into their own. He was master of the necessary arguments to support Greek claims. His friendship with Lloyd George gave him an advantage in this period of diplomacy by conference, in which policy was made in small conclaves of senior statesmen with little regard for the traditional mechanisms of diplomacy the importance of venizelos's relationship with lloyd george and the greek premier's early recognition of the british prime minister's central importance to any greek settlement in the region should also not be underestimated while the minutes of the council of four record the big three all approving the plans for a greek landing it was because of lloyd george that the issue had been brought this far notwithstanding the enthusiasm of the big three the Greek committee was not as generous to Venizelos, in spite of what Woodrow Wilson tried to claim. In fact, the issue of most importance to Wilson was the Italian behaviour, and while Vittorio Orlando had returned by the 7th of May to the Paris Peace Conference, Wilson was still evidently concerned about what Italy might do in Asia Minor. The day before they returned to Paris on the 6th of May, while it was confirmed that they would be back in time to present the treaty to the Germans on the 7th, Wilson still signalled his approval for the Greek expedition. Venizelos and Lloyd George, wrote Michael Llewellyn Smith, were able to take advantage of these circumstances to secure a decision by the Council to authorise a Greek peacekeeping mandate and the immediate occupation of Smyrna by Greek troops, which duly took place on the 15th of May 1919. It was another climax to Venizelos' career. This was, unquestionably, the high point of Venizelos's tenure as Greek Premier, and the problems began from the moment the Greek soldiers landed, and began acting with notable brutality. To the surprise of Venizelos and the soldiers he had sent to Smyrna, all the residents of that city were not universally happy to see Greek soldiers arrive, and lay claim to that city and its surrounding regions. Some fled in the face of these arriving soldiers, but others took up arms and retreated to the hills. That these latter number tended to be Muslims of Turkish ethnicity demonstrated that Venizelos had been wrong when he had previously guaranteed that these elements of the population, which seemed to shrink in number every time Venizelos talked about them, would fall in line and simply welcome the extension of the Greek jurisdiction there. A further dramatic and disastrous miscalculation was one Venizelos shared with the Allies. He completely underestimated the fury and passion of Turkish nationalism. It is no coincidence that the Greco-Turkish War, which would last until 1923, marks its official beginning as the 15th of May 1919, in other words, the moment when Greek forces first arrived in a previously Turkish-owned city. Contrary to Venizelos' expectations, Michael Llewellyn Smith recorded, Turkish nationalism, under the leadership of Mustafa Kemal, was provoked into life by the Greek occupation itself, in terms of territorial possession alone, the high point of Venizelos' premiership followed a counter-attack against the Turkish forces in the summer of 1920. Following the successful repelling of Turkish forces, the expansion of Greek jurisdiction and the occupation of several cities in inner Anatolia, the time was believed right for the conclusion of an official treaty which would solidify all that had been done in Turkey by that time. Thus, the infamous Treaty of Sevres was signed on the 10th of August 1920. The occupation of Smyrna and its surrounding region was enshrined within that treaty, though it was limited by the provision that the sovereignty remained nominally Turkish, awkwardly enough. It would remain nominally Turkish, that is, until the region was officially incorporated into Greece, and to this end a local assembly was set up, which might apply for the definite incorporation of this district into the Greek Kingdom, at the end of five years. In his commitment to occupy the Smyrna district, Venizelos faced a somewhat thankless but also incredibly hazardous task. In the years since Greek forces had landed, administration of the region hadn't proved easy, particularly in view of the growing power of the nationalist movement in Turkey, under the aforementioned Mustafa Kemal. But, as the historian Edward Forster perceived, If he was to rescue the large Greek population in Asia Minor, now or never was the moment to act before Hellenism in the Turkish Empire was extinguished. If the Smyrna district could be secured by Greece, it would constitute a place of refuge where the Asiatic Greeks might find a home. If the Greek landing spurred Turkish forces into action in May 1919, then the creation of a formal treaty, officially recognising this new state of affairs, committed Mustafa Kemal and his followers to a policy of ceaseless resistance to Venizelos's dreams. As it happened several times before when it came to the crunch, Turkish superiorities in numbers and resources proved too much for the Greek administration in the end. Two days after finalising the treaty and leaving Paris for home, Venizelos was shot at by two monarchist assassins. The divided nature of Greek society, a problem which had been papered over by the all-consuming nationalism of Venizelos' policy, was rearing its ugly head once more. For Venizelos to maintain his grip on power in Greece, the exiled pro-German King Constantine would have to be kept away. Then, in mid-November 1920, Venizelos inexplicably lost an election, and within a week, the king was back in power. This flurry of change at home in Greece affected a change in the Allied policy towards the Greek government and administration in Smyrna. Gone was the man they had known and dealt with in Venizelos, and back was the monarch who had pursued a policy of benevolent neutrality towards the Germans. It may seem incredible that a man like Venizelos could lose power, but as Venizelos knew only too well himself, neither his personality nor his actual policies enjoyed the united support of all Greeks. To maintain his hold on power, martial law had been upheld in Greece since the entry of that country into the war. With the absence of opportunities to challenge Venizelos democratically, opposition parties became more radical, and the Venizelists and monarchists became further embittered. Newspaper articles on both sides came to advocate assassination as a political tool, and it certainly did not help that Venizelos's frequent absences left less capable subordinates in control in Athens, who only seemed to make things worse. In addition, though, there was a considerable faction within Greece and the Greek military who believed that an advance into Smyrna, interestingly, was a grave mistake which Greece could ill afford. Painful memories of Allied policy towards neutral Greece up to 1917, which had included blockade, were revisited, and the monarchists engaged in a policy of pro-Constantine propaganda, which Venizelos' party answered. In October 1920, then, Venizelos's firm partner in the arrangement, King Alexander, died suddenly. Alexander's popularity and status as a royal alternative to Constantine had been a boon to Venizelos' fortunes, but with him gone, much of the support base under Venizelos also began to recede. In a bid to demonstrate that his regime still enjoyed broad support, Venizelos called an election in November 1920, the first election in Greece in five years, safe in the knowledge that he could still win. But this proved a grave political mistake. In fact, Venizelos' confidence and his decision to turn the elections into a popularity contest between himself and King Constantine backfired catastrophically, it would be more accurate to say. By the morning of the 10th of November, Venizelos conceded defeat, and to preempt any attempts by his supporters to use violence, Venizelos elected to leave Greece on the 17th of November. Within three weeks, on the 5th of December, 1920, Constantine was restored to the throne and the political reign of Venizelos, which had so defined and shaped Greece throughout the Paris Peace Conference, was over. With Venizelos gone and a royalist government, which had never fully approved of the Smyrna adventure, now in power, the prospects for victory in the war against the Turks seemed slim. Greece had other problems on its plate as well. According to the set of compromises reached between the Greek and Italian governments in the second half of 1919, Italy consented to accept Greek claims in Northern Epirus, Thrace, Asia Minor, and the Dodecanese. In return, Greece would support an Italian protectorate over Albania, Italian sovereignty over Valona, and the neutralization of the Corfu Channel. In an interesting arrangement, Italy would retain Rhodes, unless, and until, Britain conceded Cyprus to Greece, and a plebiscite was held. This temporary arrangement was the nearest Venizelos got to neutralising the obstruction by Italy of Greek claims, but unfortunately for Venizelos, it did not last. The agreements were subject to the provision that if Italian aspirations in Asia Minor were not satisfied, then Italy would recover her full freedom of action, thus rendering this compromise void. It was therefore unfortunate that Italian aspirations in Asia Minor were not satisfied by the 1920 Treaty of Sevres which compelled Italy to denounce the agreement. Thus Italian opposition continued to complicate the task of the Greeks in Epirus, Thrace and Asia Minor. With the Bulgarians too, Venizelos found that their claims to Thrace found sympathy in the United States of all places, frustrating those opportunities even further for expansion of the Greek writ in that area. The tensions between Greece and her neighbours, particularly the Italians, were aggravated in the early 1920s, largely due to the success of the Turkish cause and the resulting frustration of those parties who had put forward claims to the region. Even Mussolini's government was forced to privately concede defeat of its Turkish aims by early 1923, yet it responded by refocusing attention towards the island of Corfu, where war nearly erupted between Italy and Greece in that year, following the assassination of Italy's naval minister near the region in summer 1923. The League of Nations intervened and effectively capitulated to Italian demands in the process, signifying from an early stage its ineffectiveness in the face of determined opposition from a single aggressive party. Mussolini would repeat this tactic a decade later, with his naked act of aggression against Abyssinia. So what can we learn from the Greek landing, on this day 100 years ago, and what lessons did it teach the peacemakers and the Council of Four, whose approval of the act set the ball rolling in the first place, towards the landing itself, but also towards the Greco-Turkish war. Well, first, it underlines that there were consequences for the Allied actions, consequences which we opened this episode with. The decisions which the Big Three made on the 6th of May to land troops in Smyrna, and their later decisions to effectively abandon the Greeks in favour of the newly reinvigorated Turkish government, doomed ethnic Greeks and Christians alike to a terrible fate. Second, the failure of the Allied leaders to resolve the differences of the Greeks and Turks, or the Greeks and Italians, guaranteed that, even when the Treaty of Sevres was signed in August 1920, conflict would follow. By slapping the label of peace on an impossible situation, the Allies may have believed they had solved the problem, or perhaps they believed they had bigger fish to fry than the Greeks. Third, I think it's... Fair to state that the Allies completely underestimated the resolve of the Turks to fight back against their decisions. This rendered the Treaty of Severs obsolete, and it must represent a significant defeat of Allied peacemaking efforts in general. Three years later, the Allies will be forced to accept the Treaty of Lausanne, which effectively recognised the existence of a Turkish Republic, led by the hero of the Turkish War for Independence, Mustafa Kemal, who was now given the title Ataturk, for which he is most commonly known. The Allies could not have anticipated that a father of Turkey would emerge from the ashes of the Ottoman Empire when they approved of the Greek landing on this day 100 years ago. After everything they had seen from the Ottoman Empire, from its resilience during the Gallipoli campaign, to its hideous genocide of the Armenians, to the unholy collapse of its Arabian domains, there was not much sympathy for nor knowledge regarding what the Turkish people might decide to do next. One needs only to look at a map of Turkey, according to the Treaty of Severus, to see the Turkish people were simply expected by the Allies to be a non-entity from 1919. What was more, Allied attitudes towards the Turkish people and their individual ambitions for the different segments of Turkey remind us that it was the Turks and not the Germans who were handed far and away the most punitive of the peace treaties. The Allies took it for granted that the New World Order included an internationalised Constantinople, a free Kurdish state, Greek and Italian possessions in Asia Minor, enormous expansion of the British and French zones, and many more terms besides. Squeezed in the middle of these conditions were the Turkish people, now in a tiny Turkish rump state, who defied the Allied decisions without much consequences. In fact, it was because they defied the Allies that Turkey is an independent country today, rather than a collection of Western satellite states. It is also because of Allied policy that a forgotten consequence of this Greco-Turkish war played out. Population exchange, on an unimaginable scale, took place as ethnic Greeks from Asia Minor were swapped for ethnic Turks or Muslims from Balkan territories and Greek Albania. This seismic event was merely one condition of the Treaty of Lausanne, but once it was signed by the Turkish and Greek governments on the 30th of January 1923, it signified that the end of an era 30 centuries old had come to pass just just think of the pure significance of that for a moment and now think of the fact that pretty much nobody talks about this today and even fewer people actually realize that it took place 1.6 million ethnic Greeks and Christians moved across the Bosphorus ending in the process the history of Greek colonization of Anatolia which had been a fixture of Greek identity for thousands of years and which had originally motivated Venizelos to request the region for Greek administration in the first place the roughly 500,000 Muslims who moved in the other direction towards Turkey told their own story this was an attempt by both sides to homogenize their states and to remove any potential threat from a fifth column which might follow it is incredibly sad of course that these exchanges had to take place but evidently the relationship between Greek and Turk problematic for so many centuries had reached such a state that only this radical solution seemed to offer a way out One is struck by how completely at odds to Venizelos the entire concept would have been. One may have been shocked, therefore, to note that Venizelos was the chief Greek negotiator of this settlement. You see, a few weeks before he had led the Greek delegation to meet with the Turks, the previous royalist administration led by King Constantine, which had effectively expelled him, had fallen from power. And so the up-and-down nature of Greek domestic politics and Venizelos's actual premiership, for that matter, continued in flux, peppered with further returns from Venizelos, as well as dictatorships led by the military. From 1928 to 32. again as Premier of Greece, Venizelos worked to make the best of a bad situation, formalising relations with Greece's neighbours, including Yugoslavia and Italy, and generally working to calm the country down a bit, which would hopefully encourage foreign investment. Greece, under Venizelos, signed a treaty of friendship with Turkey in 1930, and Venizelos even put forward Ataturk's name for a Nobel Peace Prize in 1934. Ataturk returned the respect to his old foe, and the two leaders held summit meetings regularly during the period. Like so many of his contemporaries, Venizelos was undermined by the Wall Street crash and depression which followed. In 1932, the Royalist Party won out once more, and the exiled George II was recalled and restored shortly thereafter. From 1932 until his death in 1936, Venizelos endured further assassination attempts, and his supporters launched additional coups, as Greek politics continued to splinter apart in the years leading up to World War II. Finally, in 1935, Venizelos elected to leave Greece for the final time and as the ultimate insult, he was sentenced to death in absentia by the reigning Greek government, which itself didn't last long. The former soldier of the Greco-Turkish War turned politician, John Metaxas, seized power in late 1936 and he was in power when Mussolini's Italy sent the ultimatum to his government demanding that Greece surrender to the Axis in 1940. John Metaxas's refusal to play ball with the Italian demands initiated Greece's entry into yet another world war, but by that point, Venizelos had been dead for four years. During his final period in exile, Venizelos went where he had gone before, to Paris, and it was there, incredibly enough and suitably poetically for our narrative, in the city where the name Venizelos was first made known to the world, that Venizelos also died from complications arising from a stroke on the 18th of March 1936. Upon his death, a crowd of expatriate Greeks accompanied his body in a solemn procession to the train station, where it was shipped by scenic route towards its eventual destination of Crete, where the Greek titan had been born. It was believed necessary to avoid Athens for fear of arousing some kind of political demonstrations. It is easy to imagine that the monarchists, clinging to power still, were only too happy to see him go and to ensure that his burial aroused as little international or domestic attention as possible. Today, Venizelos's headstone can be found in a crotary near Cania, the second largest city of Crete, and his statue still stands at Theriso, the village in Crete, where Venizelos' revolutionary career was born.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars